Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is Mark 12, 18 through 27. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring of his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to church service this morning. Uh, Michelle Dunn is our children's pastor, and I think today is the day of her birth. Is Michelle here? (laughs) Happy birthday, Michelle. (laughs) Competing with Jesus. I like it. Um, So happy Easter, and speaking of happy, I want to let you know we're going to be talking about the Sadducees today. Okay? Uh, I know if you haven't been to church, this is where corny humor comes from. Church. Okay? A simple way that I remember learning about these guys and who they were, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not my original mnemonic, but here it is. And you're never going to forget it, as cheesy as can be, but unforgettable. Pharisees are all about the law, but they were hypocritical. That's what Jesus called them, hypocrites. So it's Pharisees aren't fair, you see. Okay? And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in life after death. So the Sadducees are sad, you see. There you have it. <clears throat> if you remember nothing from this sermon, you won't be able to forget that. Uh, we are going to talk about the Sadducees today. Uh, to use uh, modern day language, the Sadducees believe that Human consciousness, Uh, human consciousness, simply put, is to be alive, right? You're alive, you're a human being, you're alive, and not only are you alive, but you are aware that you're alive, right? And you're asking questions about the circumstances surrounding your aliveness, right? And that's what consciousness is. And uh, the Sadducees believe that human consciousness ceased upon physical death that you become nothing. And they believed this because they didn't believe in a spiritual world. They didn't believe in angels or demons or ghosts or anything like that. They just believed you were a physical creature, and once your time was up, you were done. 
Simultaneously, they also believed in power, and they believed in wealth, and they eagerly sought both political power and monetary gain. They lived in a materialistic uh, worldview within that framework, and they lived in a materialistic way. They were consistent. Uh, They placed all of their hope uh, for joy and the meaning of life on their temporary material life. And uh, today, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ, which is the afterlife. And uh, what I want us to do today is to have an intellectually and emotionally honest moment about this thing that we call the resurrection. I know that in lots of churches and pastors, they sort of assume resurrection, and they sort of, on Easter, take the occasion to sort of shout it louder. Uh, I don't want to do that. I want us to go deeper uh, in contemplation about whether that's true or not, whether it's real, whether it's possible, probable, uh, even if you think about it scientifically or emotionally or in your own experience, anecdotally, is the resurrection possible? And um, the goal for uh, some of you today, if you already believe in the resurrection, you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you believe you will also rise from the dead. If that's you, uh, invitation is for you to just think about it, focus on it, at least today, and uh, just sort of kick that tire again, make sure it's good to go. Okay? Uh, for those of you who might be a little bit more like me, because uh, I'm somebody that relates to the Sadducees uh, more often than I like to admit, um, I want to invite you to think about it in a fresh way and consider the probability and the possibility of the reality of resurrection. Okay? So that's the goal. You don't have to do anything with that. The most I want to do is sort of just plant a seed uh, in your mind and in your heart about the reality of the resurrection. Now, I am uh, somebody kind of uh, that relates to more the Sadducees than I want to admit because uh, I am a materialistic person. I sort of want to be the fittest because I want to survive. In this materialistic world, I am filled with doubts and skepticism and inquiry about whether somebody could really rise from the dead. And uh, maybe um, I have good moments when I believe in it and live that out more, but on a functional level, I function more like a Sadducee uh, than I want to admit. And my suspicion is that lots of us actually are quite skeptical about the resurrection. Uh, We take it for granted because we grew up in the church or we believe uh, for other reasons. But when push comes to shove, you're not really sure about the substance of your faith. Why do you believe that somebody could rise from the dead? You've never seen that happen. You've never borne witness. You certainly didn't rise from the dead. Why and how have you come to that position for yourself. So some questions I have for us is, um, what do you believe happens to your human consciousness after you die? What happens to it? Do you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead? 
Do you? Do you believe that such a thing could have happened? Is it possible that it happened back then? Because sort of we imagine the world back then to be very different, but in reality, it's kind of the same. It's different iterations of the same material here. Uh, Do you believe that such a thing ever happens? Is it even possible? If you believe that you're just a bag of atoms, I recently uh, became familiarized with this phrase, bag of atoms. How do you like them apples, huh? If you believe that you're just a bag of atoms, how are you, the bag of atoms, suddenly self-aware? When did the coalescing of atoms suddenly take on one identity, one common mission to be a being, and then decide to ask questions about itself as a living entity? And then start it beyond itself, contemplating the universe. How you, a bag of atoms, how have you come to crave love or cry at stories of sacrifice? How have you, a bag of atoms, come to have longing in your heart or to have hope or even get upset at anything if whatever happens is what happens because we're just part of a materialistic universe? How do you have argument against it? How are you even aware what ought not to be? How do you have expectations? How do you have a bad day? How do you even have a good day? All you have is just days if you are just a bag of atoms because you just are, just as everything is, right? Like a rock doesn't have a good day or a bad day. It just is a rock. It just exists, unaware of itself. And if that's what you are, how? Aristotle said, nothing is what rocks dream about. I know, let that blow up in your mind a little. (laughs) Do you believe that you, the something, the, the thing with consciousness, do you believe that you become the rock, the thing with nothing? You're not even a rock. You're just the thing which rocks dream about. Can you fathom nothingness in your mind? Like, you can't be and be nothing, Right? This stuff is mind-blowing to me. Or, or does consciousness go on after you die to some other, maybe even fuller way of being conscious? Is there a higher consciousness where you're even more aware of reality, more connected, where your brain unlocks and your heart unlocks and your mind unlocks and there's sort of reality that's readily perceptible to you that's not quite perceptible maybe it's hidden or unknown to you today and jesus here in this text speaks of a greater reality of something that's eternal of meaning of dimensions beyond and he asks the question are you not in error whatever you're thinking whatever assumptions you bring are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of god And he spoke of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as ones who are living. They're not dead. They're living. They're not that thing which rocks dream about. They continue to be, perhaps even in a higher way, in a better way, in a fuller way. And he implies that God is their God, meaning that to be living means to be connected to God because he's a source of all life. 
that they are somehow even more connected to him than ever before, though we think of them as dead, they are eternal. Stuff is just so weird. What do you believe? And how do you believe it? Um, confession here. When I first read this story, I just almost immediately pulled the trigger on the pas- as the passage for Easter. And then almost just a minute later, I regretted it. Just what, have I, what am I getting myself into here? Because my mind just immediately went to fragmented thoughts and memories of things I had read about string theory and quantum foam. I, things I know nothing about, but it just reminded me of those things. I was reminded that all human beings, scientists and pastors like me, were both struggling to grasp the universe in ways that we can't presently fathom. You know, right now, the best that we can do is we speak in compartmentalized terms like emotional or physical or spiritual or biological or or cosmic, these categories but that maybe the scientific and the religious are not miles apart as we tend to assume, but maybe they're actually in partnership trying to understand ultimate reality together. We are both, both categories, both ends of the spectrum, struggling to understand the fullness of reality. Uh, Jesus, he challenged the pragmatists and the skeptics of his time to consider the possibility that the resurrection is not only possible, but probable, and that there is, there is life after death, that human consciousness does indeed travel on. And Jesus is saying that he is from a greater reality of highest consciousness, and he invites us to believe this, that he is life itself. He doesn't grasp reality. He is reality. He defines reality. And he says, if he is to rise from death, we will too, because he's the God of the living and not of the dead. He's not the God of the thing which rocks dream about. I want to take you through my own story a little bit. Uh, I, I like to play the skeptic card I don't think I'm quite as skeptical as I want to be at this point in my Christianity. Like, I'm, I'm now a pastor and I've become a professional Christian. But I still am a skeptic. There is a part of me that's still asking questions. And I want to take you through two points of honesty from this story that have helped me to come to a place of belief in the spiritual world, um, a belief that really I think is helpful for me in holding the material world with a little bit more humility, and I hold my material needs a little bit loosely, and uh, I am allowed, I think, now to look a little bit further beyond the horizon, you know, a little bit further down the road. And those two points that I want us to walk through today, first is the need for meaning, and second, the need for meaninglessness. And both are true for me. We begin with need for meaning with verse 8. Let me read it for us one more time. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, 
the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And the first lesson that we learn from this passage is don't marry her. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> and some of you already want to be a Christian because you think, if I go to heaven, I don't have to be married? That'd be great. Um, consider, I want us to consider our deep, unshakable need, desire, and hope for this thing that I'm going to call meaning. We have this innate, instinctual need to leave a legacy. We want to have made impact. We want to have made a difference, as people like to say. We want to be on our deathbed and to retrospectively see the purpose to our existence. We do. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, atheist, believer, and everyone in between, all of us, we grasp at meaning on a daily basis. We see this in this passage as well. In this passage, the Sadducees are describing a Mosaic law. And the law stipulated, just as they said, that if you uh, were a part of a brotherhood and uh, the oldest wife uh, uh, she survives her husband, but they don't have any children. There's an obligation uh, on the younger brother to marry the widow so that they can have children. That was really important back then. But notice the Sadducees are talking about a concrete application of the less concrete human need to leave a legacy to somehow extend from beyond the grave. I'm not here anymore, but somehow something of me, that's why that being a brother is important, okay? Somehow from beyond the grave, I still have a shot at leaving a mark of making a difference. It's grasping at meaning. It gives expression to the desire to be more than just a bag of atoms, our desire to be eternal, to continue to exist in some way, shape, or form. Now, part of the existence of this law was to help perpetuate the family and to uh, harness, continue to harness the family's wealth. But what is wealth about? What is family about? Those, both of those things were there to serve as an extension of your instinct to be forever. If you don't have a desire to persist from beyond the grave, you don't need a family. You don't need progeny. You don't need wealth. You don't need security or stability in your life because today you just eat, drink, and be merry. You don't care about tomorrow. Oh, but we do care about tomorrow. And even the Sadducees who didn't believe in tomorrow, they are still calling upon this law. Things like success that everybody relates to. We desire it. I love up and to the right, and so do you. Human flourishing, money, power, progeny, self-expression, art, creativity. 
our biological instinct to survive and procreate. These are all just ways for us to not die even if we die. It's an acknowledgement of the hunger we have, and I'm going to say it, the hunger for resurrection. Even if you don't believe that resurrection is possible, I believe that you desire to be resurrected. That's in you. And this is one of the first truths that I had to come to terms with. I didn't want to believe in God. But there it was, this desire in my heart staring at me. And I had to ask the honest question, why? The Bible says that God has set eternity in our hearts. And I think this is more true than I want to admit. In me, the bag of atoms that I am, inside of me resides a soul. Or maybe I am a soul, that which I call I. My id is a soul. And this soul, according to scripture, is eternal. I have a beginning, but I will have no end because I am made in the image of an eternal God. And though my soul is less tangible than my body, my soul is no less real and maybe even more real because of its eternal, non-temporal nature. I don't want to admit that, but I feel it. I have the thoughts, I have the feelings, I have the dreams, and I see the concrete examples all around our society, all of us structuring our way of life as a way to perpetuate, as a way to grasp and desire eternity. And the scripture says it comes from our hearts, which mirrors the image of God. And I don't know if that's true, but I feel like there is something there. Uh, for example, if you talk to folks who get to hear the wishes of the dying, folks like doctors or pastors or EMTs or loved ones who've sat at the bedside of uh, the dying, uh, all of the dying, really, if you do a search on this, you'll see that all of the dying make a pretty similar short list. And towards the top, number one, number two, or number three, always is the question, did I make a difference? What is making a difference? Why make a difference? Because they want to know that my life was impactful. It wasn't just a dip in the finger of a pond, ripples, and then it's gone. They want to know that there was some kind of permanent change that happened. And in that permanent change, they want to be remembered forever. Legacy. Why? I think it's eternity in our hearts. It's the soul crying out for resurrection. And this is my first assertion, that everyone, every single human being, in our own ways, and in very overlapping, common, similar ways, we all instinctively understand that the life we live in this body, temporally on this earth, is too short and too small for our eternal souls. 
I've come to believe that and accept that about reality. And even these Sadducees who claimed to not believe in the afterlife longed for it in their hearts and expressed it by their grabbing at power and wealth so that they might leave an eternal mark beyond the grave. And whether you admit to it or not, functionally, you live day in and day out as one who believes and hopes for the resurrection. And I think that's true for me. C.S. Lewis uh, talked a lot about this. C.S. Lewis was a Christian apologist and writer and thinker, professor. And uh, he says things like this. If we are merely the byproduct of a materialistic universe, if truly all there is are atoms, and even if you go to the quantum level, even if you go to uh, subatomic levels, if we are really just materialistic and there is no spirit, there is no soul, why are we then so uncomfortable in a materialistic world? Why, for example, he asked, do we feel so achingly homeless if this is our home? How are we self-conscious about it? How do we get to have good days and bad days when everything should just be a day? By what standard do we measure and judge the quality of a day unless we were meant to live in a different kind of tomorrow? He says, why are we surprised by the passage of time? We ponder aloud how fast time flies or how slow it passes. How? Why? Unless, of course, we have eternity in our hearts. And by that eternity, we measure this materialistic reality called time. Unless we come from, at some point in our existence, a different dimension outside of time where a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Unless we originate from there or something about us does, how are we aware that time is even a thing. He asks questions like, if you're hungry, if a man is hungry, it doesn't prove that he will get bread, but it does prove that he was meant to eat. Because how is hunger a thing? Unless there is the capacity, the design, and the intent to consume food and be satisfied and be nourished. I think these are very fair questions. Another uh, author that I have been reading lately, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, uh, late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, he died last year of uh, cancer, lung cancer, uh, and uh, he wrote a um, little essay in the New York Times before he passed, uh, shortly after he was diagnosed, as he wrestled with uh, how much time he had left. He titled this talk, How Long Have I Got? I don't want to read to you the full section that I read in the first service. I want to just get to the last section uh, where he says this. I began to realize that coming face to face with my own mortality, in a sense, had changed both nothing and everything. Before my cancer was diagnosed, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. After the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now I knew it acutely. The fact of death is unsettling. Yet there is no other way to live. The reason doctors don't give patients specific prognoses is not merely because they cannot. 
faced with mortality, scientific knowledge can provide only an ounce of certainty. Yes, you will die, but one wants a full pound of certainty, and that is not on offer. What patients seek is not scientific knowledge doctors hide, but existential authenticity each must find on her own. Getting too deep into statistics is like trying to quench a thirst with salty water. The angst of facing mortality has no remedy in probability. As you are confronted with the reality of your own death, maybe on an acute level, not just it's somewhere down the line, but somebody diagnoses you as one who is most definitely shortly going to die. If you live and are faced with such a diagnosis, why do you suddenly wonder about time? Where did the importance of time come from? Where did the reality of time suddenly become something you are wrestling with in a brand new way? That is to ask, why the angst about facing mortality? And why is there no remedy in probability? A doctor tells you probably two weeks to two years. I don't know. How come that's not helpful? Because the question you're really asking is not when or how or what, but the real question is why. Why is death at my doorstep? And the reason you are asking that question is because of the eternity in your heart. If I allow myself to be fully emotionally and intellectually honest on this point, I have to admit that I am deeply uncomfortable with death, time, and my need for meaning precisely because I am made for resurrection with eternity on my heart. And I know on some deep, true level in my consciousness that I am meant for permanence and not just a temporary existence. I know it and my soul knows it. Now, right alongside my need for meaning is my need for meaninglessness. Verse 24 and following says this, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken." Now, one thing you have to appreciate about Jesus is that he isn't just addressing the intellectual mistake they've made in their brain about the resurrection only, but he is also addressing the duplicitous, self-deceiving nature of their hearts. He knew that the Sadducees were greedy for money and power. They lived a life that was structured entirely around grabbing at and maintaining their power and monetary wealth. This is what the Sadducees were known for. This is what they explicitly fought for. And he's saying, when he says, you are badly mistaken, 
Are you not in error? Have you not read? Is he not the God of the He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's also implying that your hearts are dead. You, though you say you live, you're dead. And though you say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they live. Because in your heart, you're filled with greed. You're filled with insecurity. You're filled with ego. And you're grasping at power and money and you're not willing to admit that you claim to have these doubts, but you're playing these doubts as a way to rationalize and justify your grabbing at money and power. And this is the hard truth I had to come to terms with about my own doubts and skepticism, which is partly, in large part, why I'm not as skeptical and as doubtful as I was once. That Not all of my doubts are honest. I claim that my intellectual doubts are genuine, and here's the thinking, and here's the evidence for why I have these doubts. But what I have come to see is that the intellectual conclusions that I've arrived at also have agendas and ulterior motives for those intellectual conclusions. I am using my doubt to justify the life I want to live. I like the hands that I'm holding because my hand includes doubt and skepticism, which I can strategically use as I see fit. And that's the reality of the human heart. It's deceptive to other people, but it's also self-deceived. Blind spots, by definition, are not seen by those who have the blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots, Not because they're blind to other people, but because they're blind to you. I have lots of reasons why I want to have doubt. I don't like having authority in my life. I don't like somebody else telling me how to live my life, what to do and what not to do. I like being self-centered. I like focusing on my own needs, hopes, wants, and dreams all the time. I like saying yes to me and no to you. I like being greedy. I like having temporary solutions to permanent problems. I like my addictions. I like gazing at my navel more than helping you gaze at yours. I like my ego and stroking it. I like when you stroke my ego. I do. And as a way to hold on to these habits and addictions and moral rules which are conveniently, perfectly aligned to the ways I happen to want to live, I have doubts. I have skepticism. It's not just that I have a need for meaning. I also have a need for meaninglessness, to ask questions, to throw my hands up and play the victim card and say, oh, you know, I've thought about the whole resurrection thing, but I don't know. Those ancient people, they were so silly and gullible. They believed anything. Everything was a miracle. Everything just was, you know, God, demon behind every bush. But the flip side is, if you want to have doubts, You will never run out of reasons to have doubts because nothing is airtight. 
It is amazing to study science and see how so many few actually proven theories exist. I mean, there's lots of things that are proven, but then there are other dimensions and different speeds at which you travel, and there are multiverses, and we just discovered gravitational waves. Like Einstein has proven, like decades later, it's crazy. To this day, we still don't know what's at the bottom of our oceans because it's so vast. You know, we still don't know what the heck the purpose of the human appendix is. There is a lot we don't know, a lot of holes in our map of the world. So if you want to have doubts, you can. And the presence of doubt does not automatically mean that your doubts are honest and true. Because you don't just have a head, you have a heart. You may think with your head, but it's the heart that positions the head for its thinking. The heart uses the head because the head is not 100% trustworthy. It's not always honest. It has motives, hidden motives. It is also self-deceived and it's directed by the heart. So if you want to buy the house, you will find all sorts of reasons why that house is perfect. If you don't want to buy the house, you see termites and cracks in the foundation everywhere. Nothing is acceptable. You know the phrase, love is blind? Because we see what we want to see. We prove text. We have biases. The way we read statistics, the way we conduct polls and studies, there's an uproar happening in the scientific community because as they go over all these studies... We see all these mistakes and biases that researchers had. Fat used to be bad and sugar was good and now sugar is bad and fat is good, but then fat is just okay and salt was bad and now salt, we're not sure. (laughs) What's your theory of the universe? Your head and your heart form your human consciousness. Use your head and your heart to answer the question, do you believe Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Given all that you are aware of in your own heart, in your own existence, as you uh, think deeply and honestly, did Jesus rise from the dead? Do you believe you too will rise from the dead? Do you at least believe you want to? Do you at least see evidence that you're striving to? I want to offer you two application points. And this, uh, these two application points come from my skeptic heart for the fellow skeptic in our midst today. And I want to offer you two ways to scientifically think about the possibility and the probability of the afterlife via the resurrection of the dead. Okay, and I'm going to ask you to track with uh, me here and turn your brain and your heart on, and I think you'll find it helpful. The first uh, guy I want to quote comes, uh, uh, his name is Joel uh, Marchand, and uh, he's an aspiring scientist and an audio engineer, and uh, he says this, trying to describe the afterlife from a scientific vantage point. He's a believer. He says this, time is a special spatial 
dimension, not necessarily a temporal dimension. Just as we experience spatial dimensions in the classical sense of height, width, and depth, we can experience time that way. Or rather, we can see ourselves as objects within the spatial dimension of time. We use the classic Flatlander story to explain it. It's about a man who lives in a flat, two-dimensional world, who comes in contact with an object from a three-dimensional world. And this three-dimensional object is a sphere. But the man in the two-dimensional world only interacts with it on his plane, so he experiences the sphere as circles that grow or shrink as it passes through the plane of two dimensions. So the idea is that all the change we experience in three-dimensional space is actually the passage of four-dimensional objects through our plane. If we can think of it that way, we can step outside of our idea of time as linear and come into this place where all of time is happening in a spatial dimension. So theoretically, everything that has happened in an old house, for example, is currently happening, though we only experience the moments that we're in. But if we were to have some sort of mutation that would allow us to perceive time in a four-dimensional sense, we could possibly see things that are happening in the past or future that are in the current location that we're in, like a house. Which, to me, explains why it's generally old things that are haunted. More has happened there, therefore there's more of a possibility of some element of past or future to intersect with the present, the present where we live. Imagine a world where you've not developed the biological ability to perceive color. The color is still there, waiting for you to understand and experience it, but you have no means of even speaking of it or even thinking about it. But imagine someone develops the ability to get a glimpse of color every once in a while. I imagine the others would probably consider it a supernatural or fringe experience, this thing called color. But it would be completely normal because the person with the mutation would have the biological ability to interact with something in that universe. That doesn't make it weird or crazy. It just makes it culturally unacceptable. Is it possible, is it possible that there are other dimensions that we are not perceiving yet? I was just rereading again this week about tetrachromats, people who have four color cones in their eyes, and they see a million more colors than we do. A hun- excuse me, a hundred million more colors than most of us do, probably all of us in this room. They perceive the world so vastly differently because they see color we can't see. Is it possible there are colors that are, that exist, that are real, that you don't see? The second person, second application point, is Michael uh, McCargue. He's a scientist that turned um, uh, atheist, Uh, even though he grew up as a Christian. And then as he delved into scientific research more, the scientific evidence led him to become a Christ follower again. And I want to read you this quote describing the scientific reality of the resurrection of Christ. He says this, In the beginning, there was a rapid expansion of a singularity. 
380,000 years later, there was light. And when there was light, there was hydrogen and helium, and they were stable, fundamental forces of physics which worked together to birth the first stars. And those stars lived for hundreds of millions of years before they died and exploded and spread their essence across the sky into clouds of heavier dust than those that existed before. The forces of physics worked together once again to craft new stars, now tightly packed into the first galaxies. And the cycle repeated. That cycle had to happen several times before we could have planets. Planets could only exist because a few generations of stars died and were reborn. And it was from that process that this planet that we live on was allowed to exist. And this planet we live on is covered with a film of life unlike anything we've seen in the universe. That life is fed by a process where carbon from the air and minerals from the soil are attached together with the energy of photons through a process called photosynthesis. So everything on this planet lives by the constant sacrifice and dying of the nearest star. Every single blade of grass, every tree, every bush on this planet is a resurrection of the sun's energy. And I exist because I steal that energy by consuming other things that have died. Dead matter literally returns to life in my body through my metabolism. And one day I will die and my atoms will go back to being alive in something else. One day our sun will explode and spread its guts and its essence across the sky and then will form new planets and new stars. Resurrection is the pattern of the physical reality we see today. Resurrection is the language of creation. Death, burial, and renewal is the way that change occurs. And so, do I find it that incredulous that somehow the source of all left his signature on our civilization through life, death, and resurrection? Is it so hard to believe when the whole universe, what we call reality and existence today, is only in existence by the pattern of life, death, and stars, all starting with a singularity, one single point, dying, resurrecting, dying, resurrecting, that the creator of the singularity the ultimate singularity would somehow leave his mark on this planet, our civilization, through life, death, and resurrection? Is that so implausible? In fact, if it was anything other, we would wonder why when the pattern of the universe is resurrection. But now... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Would you pray with me? God, we come to you today as believers and as doubters, as those who believe in the resurrection and those who don't at all or struggle with it. I pray that you would help us to um, allow seeds of truth to grow in us in an honest way. And I pray that we'd be able to move closer to truth and reality. And I, for one, along with many in this room, believe that, Jesus, you rose from the dead giving all of us life, life to the full, and I pray that we would experience it and we would trace it back to its author and give praise and honor and trust to you. In Jesus' name, amen.